0: To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members only platform, visit iConnections.io. You're listening to a bonus episode of On the Tape. Guy Adami here, joined by Dan Nathan and, of course, the great Peter Bookbar. Later, Peter's going off the tape with Wisdom Tree CEO Jonathan Steinberg. I think Wisdom Tree is probably up like $80 billion or so of assets under management. They were sort of the groundbreakers of the whole ETF world. And Jonathan and Peter have a great conversation. But before we start with that, how are you, Peter?
1: Guy, Dan, great to to chat with you guys.
0: Listen, you had a great note out this morning. Obviously, I think what's front and center is China, what's going on there, the opening, reopening, not opening, now civil unrest. It makes you wonder how this whole thing is going to shake out. And for whatever reason, our market is seeming to pick up on that today.
1: Well, what's interesting is you know China's authoritarian government is all about control, control, control. Now we're beginning to see that, that the disgust and the dissent has brought people to wit's end. It's amazing how much they're acting out. And immediately, I mean, it, it, it's just within hours of, of some of this, I'm reading a story that China's eased even more restrictions after the weekend's protests and that the government is gonna uh, no longer block access to apartments where infected residents live. Now, that may not sound like uh, that's really going out of their way, but a couple of weeks ago they announced uh, 20 different initiatives to get to an easing approach to, to their COVID stance. So there's been a lot of uh, steps that have been leading to it. But now I think the hope is that it's going to really quicken the pace. And while we still have to mate, wait until February, March when they get through the flu season, it, it, it's, it's obvious that there's an endgame here to Chinese approach.
2: So they're starting the end game, it, it is remarkable. We are literally three years on from when they started locking stuff down in late 2019, early 2020. So literally, it will probably come on the three year anniversary of that. And you know, Peter, it, it's funny, we go back to, I mean, we could all talk about Fed policy and global growth and, 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 and the things that have been drivers of the global economy. But you go back to 2018, the last time the Fed was raising interest rates and it was in Q4, I know we've all talked about this a whole heck of a lot, but China growth fears were one of the things that kind of tipped a little bit. When you think about just equity markets, our market went down 20% or so, and it caused the Fed to do an about face on, on that rate hiking cycle here. Are we about to see something very similar? Is is China in the third year of lockdowns in the growth that may or may not materialize when they reopen? Right? Are we likely to see the reopening of China matched by a global recession? Because that's obviously on the you know the tips of kind of every economist's tongue right now.
1: Yeah, that's, it's very interesting to, to think about how that sort of scenario is going to intersect. It, but but I think it's the China reopening that could, at least for parts of the world, can sort of cushion that economic downturn. And when you look at the U.S., the U.S., irrespective of China's reopening, is going to have to deal with a 7% mortgage rate in their housing market, for example. It's still going to have to deal with the impact of record high car prices with now higher uh, cost of borrowing, irrespective of China's reopening. I think China's reopening is really obviously going to help them themselves, but can also help Europe. China is Germany's biggest trading partner. We know that the the Chinese tourist has essentially been locked up for the last three years, and they're going to be unleashed on a full reopening. And the first place they're probably going to head to is parts of Asia, but also Europe. So I think that those parts of the world are going to benefit to a greater extent relative to the U.S. And then we wonder what this means for Uh, oil prices inflecting higher again, which they probably will. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw uh, triple digits again in oil when they did. So I think it's going to be more pronounced in that side of the world relative to the US. And it could create an interesting situation for the Fed in that we know that where they want to take the Fed funds rate, but this would reinforce the timetable at which they keep rates high for longer.
0: Yeah. And that's been one of the concerns. It's not the fact that they may pause or pivot, it's the fact that this might last a lot longer than people think. I think a lot of economists, a lot of strategists, forecasting rate cuts somewhere in 2023, but I think this might flip the narrative a bit, and I don't think the market is necessarily prepared for that. Clearly, what the market's not also prepared for is the fact that oil's almost now, if you think about it, been cut in half, not really, down about 40% from the highs we saw earlier this year. But oil under pressure is fascinating, something that Dan's been saying is going to happen for quite some time. And here we are. What I find, though, really intriguing, Peter, As the commodity unravels, at least until today, the oil stocks have held up incredibly well. And I think it sort of reinforces the point you just made that at some point the oil market's going to reemerge here.
1: Right. And we also know that that oil stocks, even with the rally, uh, were trading at very cheap multiples and assuming an oil price sustainably of 65 to 70 dollars. So even with this drop, it's just back to where a lot of these stocks have already been pricing for. And you look at some of the European oils, which we own a few of them, like BP and Shell. I mean, they're trading at half the multiples of Chevron and Exxon. And even Chevron and Exxon, at most, they were trading 10 times earnings. And you compare that to other parts of the market. You, you, you throw in a pretty good dividend yield. And, you know, the assumption was that these stocks were never tra- trading... In, um, embedded in the evaluation was never a hundred dollar plus oil.
2: You know, it's interesting, Peter, that that you mentioned, you know, just the the kind of cheapness of of the energy sector. And we know that, again, they don't make up, you know, more than 5% of S&P 500 weightings. They've been a disproportionate percentage of the earnings growth, right, in the S&P 500. You take energy out and you have negative growth for 2022. And, you know, we track pretty closely. John Butters, he writes the Earnings Insight blog over there at FactSet. He's basically suggesting that analysts are forecasting that that contribution to growth is gonna start trailing off in Q2 of next year. And I guess I just wonder, given this backdrop of what you're talking about here with higher rates, right? We have a consumer that's getting tapped. Guy's been talking about consumer credit is going through the roof at a time where the savings rate um, is coming down. And, and, I, and I guess I just wonder here, if you look at S and P earnings. We've talked about this with you. You know, in 2023, if energy does not do the heavy lifting, and we see some of these major tech names, which are you know already guiding down for Q4 or have guided down for Q4, what does it look like for S and P 500 earnings? And have strategists lowered their estimates enough already?
1: I think they're they're only getting around to trimming estimates after we saw third quarter earnings season. Now that to the point where Uh, For at least 2022, you're down to about $220 in S&P earnings. And I think it's important bigger picture to understand that when you look out over the last 10 years and putting aside the the, the cut in the corporate tax rate at the end of 2017 that obviously was pronounced, the two biggest drivers of profit margin growth, profit margin expansion to what ended up being a record high was lowered interest expense and low labor costs. And now we've obviously inverted higher in terms of of interest rates, particularly for those companies that didn't fully term out, for those companies that borrowed floating rate and didn't hedge. And then on labor costs that are running at around 5% average hourly earnings, which is double the pace in the 20, 25 years leading into COVID. So profit margins will be under pressure. And I think if we are now going to see a moderation in inflation in 2023, which we're already beginning to see the beginnings of, well, inflation has been the only driver of revenue growth. And then some, you, you look at some of the consumer products companies that saw 9% revenue growth, while they had you know, 11% pricing and a decline of 5% in volumes, throw in some FX and net net, that's how they got their revenue growth. So if inflation actually slows, that would inhibit revenue growth. At the same time, profit margins are compressing And that's going to lead to lower earnings next year than I think analysts are anticipating.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And I've talked about if you really want the real inflation rate, just look at the organic growth. And I have sort of air quotes up while I'm saying this for companies like, you know, Procter & Gamble and Kraft and General Mills and companies that have basically passed on their costs to the consumer. That's really an accurate description, I think, of where things are. But the other thing that we've talked about on, on the tape, on Market Call, on Fast Money, Danny Moses has brought this up. As we're sitting here right now, twos tens is probably approaching 80 basis point inversion. I've thought for a while we could get to 1% in the form of 3.5% in the 10 year, a sticky 4.5% in the two year. And Peter, I say this all the time, I'm not an economist, I don't pretend to be, but even I know that can't be particularly good.
1: What it's also reflecting is is the dependency of the US economy on low interest rates. And that just as we need food to sustain ourselves, the U.S. economy over the last 20 years has needed low interest rates to have economic growth because our savings rate is so low. The consumer savings rate, as opposed to like the, the business savings rate, the household savings rate is at the lowest level since 2008. So you need low interest rates in order to supplement that low savings rate in order to generate faster economic growth. So we we don't have normal economic cycles anymore. We have credit cycles that ebb and flow at the cost of capital. The cost of capital goes up, economic growth is going to slow, and to your point, that is now being fully reflected in the yield curve inversion.
2: All right, Peter, let's talk quickly before we get out of here. Stock market, we've had a nice rally. The S&P 500, what is it? Almost round tripped back to those kind of pre-pandemic highs, okay? We had our eyes on that 3,400 number in the S&P 500. Here we are, we're right at 4,000 here. You know, if you look at the charts, you see that downtrend that's been in place. You see that declining 200-day moving average. We're basically nearly there. I'm just curious, you know, after this, the size of the rally we had. You think about just what's going on right now in the near term with what all that we just talked about here. But there's some things on the horizon here. We got jobs at the end of the week. We're going to have CPI. We're going to have a Fed meeting. We see the Fed speak is already kind of indicating that at least a case for what we already know is, is a slower pace of increases that's going to happen at the December meeting. I'm just curious your thoughts into year end, because right now the S&P is down about 16% at its lows. It was down about, what, 25% or so. You know, I'm of the belief that kind of higher we go right here is the harder we fall in the new year. But I could also see a retest of this kind of Thirty-six hundred. If we have the slightest hint that any of this data is hot, if if the jobs unemployment doesn't move up, you know, if we have a CPI that's maybe a little hotter, you saw a little cooler. What that did to stocks over the last couple of weeks. Thoughts here in the year end on the S and P five hundred.
1: I agree Uh, uh, to your point about what the next focus is going to be. A bear market has different multiple hills to climb before it's over. And I think we, we've sort of climbed the first hill We've the, the, the multiple compression in, in stocks sort of gotten past peak inflation, we're approaching sort of peak hawkishness and peak rate hikes. So we've completed that. We, we, we breathed a sigh of relief in the market that I think has driven this rally on top of the belief that, okay, it's the market's God-given right to, to rally at the end of the year. But the next hill to climb is to your point of the economic consequences of higher interest rates, the earnings consequences of a global recession. And I think that is the next challenge, the next hurdle, which we started to see the beginnings of in Q3 because earnings estimates have now slipped. But I think it's now going to be more pronounced when we see fourth quarter earnings uh, mid to late January into February and then the quarters subsequent to that. And the realization that just because the Fed's done raising interest rates, they're not coming down anytime soon. And quantitative tightening, which no one seems to talk about anymore, is still going on. And the Fed's balance sheet has already shrunk by about $340 billion and is about to start to pick up the pace in the sense that it hasn't been a one-for-one one $95 billion a month that it was meant to be because of MBS and some settlement issues. But now it starts to kick in in the sense that that is going to be a major liquidity drain that I think people need to start paying attention to if they're not already.
0: Yeah, no question about it. I mean, the bulls will discount that without question. The bears will point it out. I think you're right to point it out. We'll see if the market reacts. But upon our return, that's not when we come back, which most people say. So I'll say, upon our return, Dan and Peter, Peter's conversation with Wisdom Tree CEO Jonathan Steinberg. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Book Report CEO podcast. Uh, today I have Jonathan Steinberg, who is the founder and CEO of Wisdom Tree. And I need to emphasize that Wisdom Tree used to be Wisdom Tree Investments, but the company just shifted to the New York Stock Exchange, changed its stock symbol from WETF to WT, and it is now just Wisdom Tree. Uh, Jono, thank you for uh, joining me.
3: Thank you for having me, Peter.
1: Now, I remember back in the 90s, I was an avid reader of individual investor. Uh, I, I started out as a small cap, micro cap, stock market investor, it was my passion, I loved it, and uh, I felt that your magazine was was a go-to. Um, so can you tell me like how you got into this business and what brought you from, from that, which was a publicly traded company also, so Wisdom Tree is not your first rodeo here, and and how it led to uh, creating Wisdom Tree, and and you were very early in sort of being one of the the creators of this exchange traded fund industry, and and what sort of lights went off that you said, you know what, this is the future.
3: So first, Peter, it is the same company. So Wisdom Tree was individual investor group, okay, that went public. So I made the transition, which was not easy to do as a public company to go from media, financial media, which was this research-based, independent, unbiased research for the masses to what is Wisdom Tree, the asset manager. So I was early on the retail investing side. I launched the company actually in 1988. It was before the internet. Even though I was early on retail, it was late in terms of print. So shortly after I launched Wisdom Tree. Netscape came out. If you remember Netscape, it was the first browser and it showed you how information was going to be free. And I thought to myself, Oh, I am in trouble that magazines print is in, is dead or will die. And I can see that clearly now that I understand what, you know, Netscape is doing. So as I'm running individual investor, Which was really just for the purpose of enhancing the investor's experience. And I loved my journalism, the magazine. It was a a laboratory of what worked for investors. And my director of research, way back in 1999, brought me my first story on an ETF, The Qs, when the rapper, only had about $40 billion of AUM in the ETF wrapper worldwide. But I saw very clearly the wrapper, liquid, transparent, tax-efficient, was a step function better than the mutual fund. And I thought, this will be the future of asset management. And in 1999, no iShares, no Vanguard, there are really only three funds, the Spider, the MidCap, and the Qs. And I thought as a research organization, I was building indexes. Anyway, I sold my magazines and my websites. I held my indexes and then I started a journey to relaunch myself as an asset manager. It was a very, very hard transition. I actually went from a high of $11 a share and 140 employees down to Three employees. I touched a penny a share. I touched a penny a share. And in 2004, around the IP and the business plan that is today Wisdom Tree, I got Michael Steinhardt, Jim Robinson, and Jeremy Siegel to back my IP. I sold them $9 million worth of stock at a 400% premium when the stock was at three pennies. So they paid 16 cents and I announced it and I went up 38,000% in a day. I went from a $300,000 market cap to 125 million on Steinhardt and Siegel and sort of Wisdom Tree was born. I remember those original commercials. You know, it was the Maverick, which was Michael Steinhardt, who was you know, yours is an investing show. So Michael Steinhardt, for those of you who might not remember him, and he should be remembered, he was a peer of George Soros in the birth of the hedge fund industry. And for 29 years, he delivered after fee returns of 24 and a half percent a year for 29 years.
1: Uh, the, the Market Wizards book, it, his interview was one of my my favorite chapters.
3: I mean, he, but that is a good performance record in all different market cycles. So anyway, no one wanted to back my transition. No one from media to asset management. Michael really wanted to, but no one would back his idea. Everyone told him not to do it. Everyone, including his family, but he just wanted to do it. And it just shows. Unbelievable conviction, and it worked out incredibly well for him. He got a 16x return on the first day, and Wisdom Tree was born. And he was so proud of the whole experience. And I'm still working with Professor Siegel uh, more closely than ever before. And Michael has recently, a couple of years ago, retired from the board, but we remain great friends. And today, Wisdom Tree is an 80 billion dollar asset manager globally. Very excitingly, you know, moving into digital assets on the strength of our ETF franchise.
1: Well, what I what I always thought was was very unique about Wisdom Tree was the products that you guys created were were, were very outside the box. Like you you, you rather than just creating in a, a variety of index funds and and just creating a you know a low cost. Way for the average person to just be a, a passive index buyer. It's almost like you you looked at opportunities within the market that were not being served for the retail investor, and and created the a product for it. And and I know you guys started earlier in mid two thousands, but one of the the ETFs that I just thought was genius on your part was was the DXJ, the uh, the Japanese yen hedged. Uh, equity ETF. And the timing was just spectacular that you had the the beginning of Abenomics sort of late 2012 into 2013, where their purpose, one of the purposes was, let's just have our central bank print a a boatload of money, weaken the yen and goose the stock market. Well, if you were a, if you bought Japanese stocks and did not hedge out the, the, the yen, well, you were working at sort of cross purposes. And here, Wisdom Tree had this product that you hedged out the yen and allowing people to
3: to almost one-for-one capture the rally in Japanese stocks. And in that year, we took in like 14 billion of net inflows. And more impressively, in 2013, we took in 88 cents of every dollar in the United States that went into the Japanese theme, which is extraordinary for a little asset manager. But if you take it back a little bit, I saw the value of ETFs in 99 before iShares came, before Vanguard launched, I knew Vanguard was coming. So the the business plan, as I pitched it to investors, was how to thrive in a Vanguard world, which incorporated going, going to the ETF wrapper, which was better than their mutual fund strength. But it also meant... I would pioneer a different business model, which was called self-indexing. I did not want to compete with Vanguard on the same indexes on price. And so but with self-indexing, I could create. So my first set of products, the ones that Professor Siegel said to Michael Steinhardt, this is the best approach to indexing I'd ever seen was I dividend weighted the developed world. So in June... Of 2006, we launched 20 funds in a day. Six of them were US equities, meaning all dividend payers in the US, weighted not by market cap, but by their cash dividends paid. And I broke that up into large, mid, and small. And then I did a specialty fund, high yield. That high yield fund today, I believe DHS is the best performing dividend fund in the United States year to date. And then I did 14 funds that were international, all dividend weighted. And there I was going up against, by the time I launched, iShares was in the market. They were taking 99 cents of every dollar that went into an international ETF. And that's because State Street and Invesco, they each had one ADR fund. I was the only one to to spend any money on international exemptive relief. And I did. So I created size cuts internationally. So before Wisdom Tree, you couldn't buy large, mid and small internationally. And DXJ was one of my original 20, though at the time it was unhedged for currency. We then inserted the hedge a couple of years later and it was you know just a much better investing experience. And even today, Japanese equities go up when the Japanese currency goes down. Uh, they have an inverse correlation.
1: Definitely helps to protect a, a US based investor. And, and I think you, you point out you know, what has been unique about Wisdom Tree is, is sort of a, an index ETF type structure, but with fundamentally based decision making. You know, as opposed to if I buy IWM, for example, and I get exposure to the Russell 2000. Well, a third of the companies in that are money losers. Right. Well, in in order to pay a dividend, you need to actually generate cash flow. And in order to generate cash flow, you have to have earnings. So I think bringing that sort of fundamentally based technique to an ETF just creates the the potential for outperformance
3: relative to just the passive, boring ones that a lot of the others uh, come out with. And what we tried to do, because this was when we launched in 2006, the SEC had not yet approved active ETFs. We were making it rules-based active. Today, you know, people call it smart beta, we call it modern alpha, but it was a smarter index. It was trying to get, deliver differentiated outperformance versus cap-rated beta, but you had to do it before they approved active ETFs. And now it's all sort of blurred, but it all, but it's it's proven to be a very successful approach.
1: So so, what's sort of the 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 process behind, and you know, without obviously getting detailed on an idea of of like of of thinking, okay, there this is a potential investment opportunity. Let's see how we can create a product that can tap into that. Like almost going back to your individual stock picking days, do you guys think about, okay, This there's an opportunity here and and it's not really being covered?
3: Well, I, mean, I started with, you know, I tried to do, I was doing a lot of different index construction when I was individual investor magazine. I eventually got to an idea. I said, what if I did the Wilshire of dividends? I just took all dividend payers and cap weighted it. And that beat the S&P 500 by like 50 basis points over, you know, the history of the S&P 500. And then I said to myself, what if I wanted to enhance the yield. I don't want to yield weighted because that's not scalable. A small company with a big yield can't handle a lot of capital. So I did cash dividends paid and I reran the test. And what happened is my yields went up and my performance instead of beating the S&P by 50 basis points over 50 years a year, I now started to beat it by 125 basis points. And so index construction is selection and weighting, that's all that goes into it. So I got some of it from selection, only dividend payers. And then I weighted it differently and I got even more. And that's how you sort of got out of cap weighting, which, you know, cap weighting by definition is always overweight. The most overvalued stocks. You just don't know which ones they are at any given time by definition. So for me, there was a purity to what I was doing at Wisdom Tree, which was really, again, trying to create a better investing experience and that purity. So, you know, like anyone can create a back test and it always looks good. You wanted to make sure that you weren't lying to yourself, that it would work going forward that it had a, a reason to exist not just to take money from an investor but to enhance the investing experience and for me it's always started with product
1: and 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 we know that you know not every ETF works not every investment strategy works how much time do you give an ETF to work is it is it a performance metric is it an asset under management metric by a certain time like how do you like
3: so uh, cut your losses short so to speak on a product that doesn't work out? First of all, you would like to give it some time. And what's very hard is to take something it launches with a $2 million. It's not available on any platform. Most salesmen won't be able to actually access it or get behind it because it's too small for their clients. That first from launch to 50 to 100 million is very, very hard. You need to work hard at it we have certain things whether it's television marketing sometimes you just have to let time pass and you get performance over time and then you market the performance so sometimes you're just like we did an inflation product and we were so early that we just closed it if i had it still today but i mean i might have been 15 years early you know what i mean so keeping it alive for 15 years where it didn't have an interest you know, is not so easy. This year, we're, we're having a very strong flow year. We have something like just under 10 billion of net inflows year to date. One of the things that are working very well is floating rate treasuries. But when we launched floating rate treasuries in 2014, interest rates were zero. And so that product just sat there for a couple of years. Now it's a $12 billion fund. So we didn't close it. We knew it wasn't right for the market at this moment, it's doing what it's supposed to do, and then when we started to see a, uh, even a whiff of higher rates, we got behind it hard with TV and research and and the sales team marketed it, and we just took it away from you know iShares, which launched on the same day at the same price their floating rate Treasury fund. So let's go to 2008. Markets are down. You're even though you're taking in money. You're losing money as a firm. Sometimes you just have to make a hard choice and say, even though I like this fund and I know someday it's going to be a good fund, the realities are I just have to cut the fund, reduce my expenses to live another day. And sometimes you have to make a hard choice like that. Today, we have enough scale as a firm that I don't usually have to make those kinds of decisions.
1: Right. You can, you can give some ideas more time. What's very good about the, the Treasury floating rate is that most of the floating rate out there in the world are junky bank loan credits. The investment grade floating rate universe is very small relative to the, the high yield floating rate universe to be able to actually benefit from a rise in interest rates and being in a high quality bond.
3: It's like seven day government paper. It's in a rising rate environment. It's as good as it gets.
1: All right. So I want to shift to Wisdom Tree Prime because I, I find this interesting because obviously the world is talking about crypto, even more so with the, the implosions with FTX and so on. But you, you're taking a very interesting tact. Like You're really trying to utilize the blockchain and, and creating sort of a digital wallet. And when you read the, the press release and the, in the um, agreement that you announced with uh, Stride Bank and Galileo, it seemed somewhat unusual compared to the exchange traded mod-
3: business model that you have and sort of creating this new new world for your clients? So, um, you know, for the maybe the last. So first of all, I break crypto is a subset of what I call digital assets. So digital assets is the all encompassing umbrella. Crypto is the asset class, Bitcoin, Ethereum, what have you. So we wisdom tree, we are in the business with ETFs to offer hard to trade ideas, making them compliant and easy. So launching crypto ETPs in Europe where they're allowed was easy and it was a no brainer. And we've done that. And we're, we have a, you know, we've taken in like 5% of the flows in crypto ETPs and with all of the headlines about bad business habits, like a, an XTF and stuff. Wisdom Tree's brand I think is resonating well in the crypto space. And those are
1: cash products as opposed to in the US where they're basically futures on Yes, well
3: you're right. So in the United States crypto is not going to in my opinion emerge as an ETF or an ETP product line because the SEC at least under this administration won't allow it. So we are trying to offer for the RIA custom indexes for in the SMA Format so that they can access it through SMAs. So we think that's how it's going to emerge. And in Wisdom Tree Prime, which is how you started the question, we will also have within Prime the ability to hold crypto. But Prime was, or my digital asset push in general, was asking a question Is there anything coming that can do to ETFs? what ETFs did to mutual funds. And after a few years of investigation, it came to us that blockchain enabled financial services, which it means tokenization. You know, we're so early in tokenization right now. So we launched a fund, a treasury fund, short duration treasuries. There's no exchange that has the license today for tokenized securities. None. So you need the wallet to put the token in to be able to offer it to consumers. So that shows you how early we are. And if you think about my ETF journey, I launched in 2006, but I was 13 years after State Street Spider and seven years after iShares. So though I got in somewhat early, a lot of people got in earlier than me. With digital assets, we want it to be first. And we think blockchain enabled financial services is really a big opportunity. So we'll hopefully, with Wisdom Tree Prime, go from just being, let's say, a sponsor of ETFs to more of Wisdom Tree Prime could be a direct to consumer RIA it could be called a neobank it's a place where investing savings and payments are all in the same mobile app where we are we're in beta test today and in the towards the end of q1 of next year i think it'll roll out nationally and we're we're very excited about where we are in this journey so so
1: someone would come to wisdom tree prime and open up an account like they would at a a brokerage
3: firm or they would at their local bank? It'll look, the experience will, it'll be done virtually. We're going to make sure that you, Peter, are who you say you are. We'll have to have some documentation to make sure that crypto, Bitcoin, they talk uh, DeFi, decentralized finance. What they mean is there's no intermediaries. There's no compliance. We don't believe in that. What we believe in is responsible DeFi. So responsible DeFi means that one, we need to, it has to be regulated. We can't in inha- we can't allow for money laundering, or you can't let assets travel improperly through different jurisdictions. And so compliance is a roadblock that we accept. Now we can still give you DeFi experience like peer-to-peer exchange of value, take that treasury fund or that gold token or that dollar token and send it to your son or your wife who's traveling abroad. You'll be able to, if they have a wallet and you have a wallet, very safely, you'll be able to send money. Not only that, but you'll be able to take that money and buy a, go to Starbucks and buy a coffee or go to the car dealership and buy a car. That's what we're hoping for. So we hope to have a more Primary relationship with you, the customer. So, you actually, Peter, I have a very long relationship with. First, you were a subscriber to my magazine, so I was very removed, but I was an input in your investing process. I became more central to you in the journey when you bought DXJ. I now you were buying directly from Wisdom Tree. You're, you're engaged with Wisdom Tree. I'm in your portfolio, and with Prime, it'll be more so than that. Floating rate treasuries will look a lot like a savings account.
1: Right. So you'll be able to own uh, a Wisdom Tree ETF within this wallet, along well, with well. This won't
3: be. This will be. Um, yes, you'll be able to do that. But really, the first wave of product, we are not tokenizing ETFs. We're creating new tokenized exposures completely separate from the ETFs
1: right okay got it got it um, all right as we wrap this up I just want to get your two cents on the, the state of the world M- when you think about 40 years highs in inflation uh, most aggressive fed in 40 years and you sort of look at the the, the menu of, of ETFs that you provide do you have any 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 n- not not looking for a, a market opinion like we would ask Jeremy Siegel but just any macro thoughts here
3: well I mean it's um It's certainly a very um, unsettling time. It doesn't feel like people feel good. Certainly, if you're talking about it from the perspective of just investors, almost all asset classes are down. You have had really sharply higher interest rates, which have forced a change in leadership in the market. So we're benefiting today from short duration fixed income and a shift to value versus growth. Rates... No matter what, I don't think they're going down in the short term. They may go up more slowly, but it may be that with these kinds of interest rates and maybe you get, you know, another 100 basis points by the end of next year, maybe, value seems to be where there's some real interest, even though certain unprofitable companies are down a lot. I'm not sure that's where I would be heading. The other thing is, If you thought of your old 60, 40, the 40, which was fixed income, you can now invest in fixed income for interest instead of capital appreciation, which you're now starting to go to longer duration. You know, we have fundamental fixed income, you know, our high yield bond has like an 8% yield. It's, it is of interest in this world. So I think that they're going to remain very unsettled times. I think that there's the market still looking for a, a shift in leadership i you know i don't know if you can have leadership when the markets are purely down i mean you could do less badly but that's not good enough as an investor i mean energy you went to a real small subset energy up most of those sectors are down but i think well diversified portfolios i believe in fundamentals i believe in valuation interest like dividend paying securities, I think that's a very good bet. It feels like markets are very constructive for wisdom tree at the moment. It seems that way.
1: I have to uh, agree on, on the dividend thing in particular. If we're about to enter, call it a decade of lost capital gains in the sense of just as we, we topped in 2000, we didn't regain that high until 2013. If you bought the Dow in 1929, you didn't get your money back till 1954, 1960 to 1982, but during those times, dividends and interest income become a very important part of total return. Dividends, in particular, and and I've been making that argument here with 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 our portfolios and our clients, is that the importance of dividends to generate return, because it's possible that 10 years from now, the S&P 500 may not be that far off from where it is today. But if you collect the dividends, if you reinvested them, that is where you are going to set your, your portfolio apart.
3: I completely agree with you. And, um, you know, it's what in, it's what brought Jeremy Siegel to Wisdom Tree way back when in 2004, a complete agreement with that concept with that most of your long term equity returns historically came from dividends and dividend reinvestment.
1: Right. And particularly dividends that that actually are, 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 are noteworthy. The S&P 500 dividend yield is just 1.7%. You can buy things that have dividends of two, three, four uh, percent. you're setting yourself apart from the SP, which may have a lost decade because of its dominance of, of big Cap tech, which seems to be time for a rest and a shift to more value- related uh, investments.
3: Let me just say before we before DXJ got hot, I had a fund called DEM. Which was emerging markets, the highest yielders within emerging markets, and it was my biggest fund before DXJ took off. Still, like a three billion dollar fund, but it's got like a ten percent yield.
1: I was actually looking at it today. I, I did see that. And so in- I
3: mean, there are opportunities, and it's um, it's just a good metric to keep an eye on. I, 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 I listen. I believe in income.
1: Yeah, agreed. Same. Well, John, I can't thank you enough for uh, for joining me. Uh, I thought you're. Your career has been uh, pretty amazing and just a pioneer in the exchange-traded fund business. And I'm going to be watching the Wisdom Tree Prime with, uh, with a lot of interest. We know blockchain, uh, irrespective of where the price of crypto
3: goes, blockchain is the technology that will outlast everything else. Peter, I so appreciate the opportunity and uh, I look forward to coming back. Thank you. Nothing in this broadcast
1: should be construed as investment advice nor a recommendation to buy or sell securities. The discussion is for informational purposes only, and past performance is not indicative of future results. The specific securities discussed may be held by Peter Buchvar personally and or purchased, sold, or recommended to Bleakly clients.
0: Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet.